0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Well, I realize there are some of you who do your liturgical homework. And probably what you've just recognized is we've already done this gospel recently, right? On August the 6th which we call the Feast of the Transfiguration. That's right. So it's a feast day that the Holy Church had been celebrating for a very long time, so it has to beg the question, did we not get it on August the 6th so we have to do it again? Well, in case you haven't noticed, churches aren't packed on August the 6th, generally speaking. Sorry to have to break it to you. But the other thing that you might notice as you do some of your homework is you'll recognize that for a significant period of time, the three Sundays before Ash Wednesday, I think we know when Ash Wednesday is by now, don't we? All right. Would have been called something special, pre-Lent, which would be Septuagesima, Sexagesima, and Quinquagesima. Today is Quinquagesima. But in liturgical renewal, when it started taking place, one of the things that happened is that this Sunday became the Sunday where invariably speaking the gospel would be of the transfiguration. And thus it's sometimes nicknamed Transfiguration Sunday. So the question I think we have to ask ourselves is why? (laughs) Well, we probably recognize, don't we, that we have to make some adjustments before Wednesday so we don't break up, wake up on a Wednesday morning and say, oh, it's Ash Wednesday, maybe I should think about, I don't know, giving up something or changing my attitude, probably not going to have a steak tonight for supper, you know, something along that line. You've made some preparations beforehand, and this is a good day for us to be able to think about the fact that we have to be transfigured we have to make some changes. I know that's difficult news for some people who really, you know, don't need to make changes. You know who they are. So that being said, the question that we might want to ask is in the first sentence of the gospel. I want you to look at that first sentence. And I'll bet you that absolutely everybody here knows what was said eight days beforehand, Right? I mean isn't that a little bit interesting that the gospel would open up with what had been said 8 days beforehand and most people were sitting around saying um not sure. So let's think about it. In order to do that I have to take you on a trip. I have to take you all the way over to the Holy Land. And now I have to take you to a place called Caesarea Philippi. Remarkable place. And as I'm standing here at Caesarea Philippi, having just taken you there, I am looking over to the right, and I see a snow-covered mountain that's called Mount Hermon, unless you're an American, in which case you get away with saying it's Mount Hermon. And over here, you have a chance to see another mount right near it, and it's called Mount Tabor, unless you're an American and you get away with being able to call it Tabor. So here we have these two mounts over there, and now we're looking straight ahead, and what we see in this incredible place, already knowing that it must have had a building project, right? Because it has the name Caesarea, so it means some funding. And named after one of the, the Tetrarch who... Philip, Tetrarch. so we have Caesarea Philippi, we're standing there, and what we're looking at is nothing but solid rock. We are standing on nothing but solid rock. There's nothing to be found anywhere here but solid rock. Unless you look over to the right, and there you can see, depending upon the time of the year, a little bit of water coming down as Mount Hermon is melting. And the water comes down, and this is what we call the headwaters of the river Dan. Now, what do you think happens after the river Dan picks up a little bit of strength and flows south? It gets a name change, doesn't it? It gets called the Jordan. And if we really follow, because we really like going south, because, you know, here we are, if you look a little bit farther, eventually it becomes the Sea of Galilee, And if you keep on looking south, I think you know what happens next, right? It becomes the Dead Sea. So there's all that wonderful water glistening, as it were, coming down from Mount Hermon. It winds up becoming the Dead Sea. Another day I'll preach a sermon on it. That's the Christian life for us sometimes, by the way. Now then, why is that significant? Well, it's because what you see when you're looking at these rocks in front of you are caves. Yeah, cut out of the hillside, caves. Not uncommon for people back then. But what makes this place really remarkable is because above these caves are booths or niches that are carved out of the mountainside, and that's because that's where they place their household gods. The locals would go and they'd have their prayers there. Now, the vast majority of people didn't want to leave their statues there, so they took them home, so they've got their booths and and their niches there. But the vast majority of people who were living there at that time would have been shepherds, and the popular God was the God Pan. Yeah, I saw three people saying Pan, star for you. So that's right, God Pan. And they were noted, the people there, because when they prayed to the god Pan, they would oftentimes be shaking around and making all kinds of movement. And do you know what that movement was called? Panic. That's where we get the word panic is from that. And so here we have a a situation where the people know what's going on, and they're probably even asking why Jesus is there. Why would he go to the low-rent district? Why would he go to a place that was not noted for anything holy? Obviously, this was not a good place for Jews to go, but there he was with the 12 apostles. Now it's time for his catechesis course. And that is, first of all, what he does, looking at all those niches. I never add or take away from Scripture, by the way, but I want you to think a little bit with me. He's looking at the niches there. What's a possible thing he might have said? Which God do you think is up there? Uh, Well, maybe Pan. Which one over here? And on and on. And then suddenly it looks like here it is in the scriptures. Who do people say that I am? Whoops. Now you notice when you ask people what the other people are saying, usually that's the they. What are they saying? Everyone knows how many answers there are. And that's what happened in that gospel, right? They started saying the names of all the ones, and they probably were saying that themselves because the apostles hadn't quite figured it out yet, but they were going first with this simple question. Who do men say that I am? And they tell him. Now comes for the tough one, right? Who do you say that I am? Whoops. And at this moment, at least in my mind as I'm standing there, because I've been there about 15 times or so, I I actually see the 11 apostles taking three steps back and poor Simon standing there all by himself. And so he is the man of the moment. Who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now the interesting thing there is that Jesus then says to him, if, if you look at one version, it says, you know, Simon Barjona, this hasn't been given to you in a natural way. This has been revealed to you in a supernatural way, which is very good because it makes it clear that he didn't just figure that out on his own. But now we have a problem. You can just see, if you will, for a moment, he has said this, and now the eleven are looking around going, oh no, it's out of the bag. He said it. What happens now? And of course what happens is Jesus commends him to such an extent that he gives him a new name, doesn't he? He says, you are Peter, and on this rock, does it make sense now? On this rock, I will build my church. Now, you know something about church plants. I want to tell you something right now. Caesarea Philippi would not have come back with positive surveys for a church plant. Need to tell you that. But it was used by Jesus to point out clearly, on this rock, I will build my church. Now, you can imagine that once Jesus gives a positive statement to Simon Peter, then the other ones, the 11, thought it was a great answer. But they had to wait first, to see how Jesus responded. That happens in life, doesn't it? Think about it. You Kind of look around and see, see what they're saying, and then you wait and see what the lecturer or the priest or whoever it is has to say. Was that the right answer or the wrong answer? Obviously, this was the right answer. And now he would be known as Peter. If, if you want to never forget children, if you never want to forget his name, here's what I need to remind you. He went from being known as Simon to Peter, or Rock, Petros, and his dad's name was John. So if Simon Peter were among us today, his name would be Rocky Johnson. So if you think about that, you'll never forget his name. And so here we have him looking really good among the apostles and Jesus now because he feels rather good about what's happened. Okay, you have just asked, what's this have to do about the transfiguration? Everything, because that's the scene before the transfiguration. Now let's see if it makes sense. Now what happens, they go up onto the mount. Now here's the thing. I want to tell you which mount they went to, but it partly depends upon who gets your ticket when you're over there. That is, many people think it's Mount Hermon because it's always glistening white, so it looks like a really nice place where the Transfiguration might have taken place. And other people say it was Mount Tabor, Tabor, and if you're not sure about that, there are two churches built, which is normal. You know, Orthodox build it first. Roman Catholics say, I'll build one too. So those two churches right on the very top there, you get your choice to decide which one you want to go to. Whatever it is, nonetheless... This takes place on the mount. Really important for Jewish people, right? The things that are important take place on the mount. But in this situation, what happens is, and here's where it gets difficult, only the inner circle was invited. Whoops. Who's the inner circle in this regard? Peter, James, and John. So here's Peter's magnificent moment to exercise his new authority so there they are the next thing you know they see jesus in the middle light all around him they see moses light all around him and elijah light all around him but jesus is in the middle And up till now, they've been told how important Moses and Elijah are. They also know that Elijah has to come back before the Messiah can come. So there are all sorts of hidden messages in this experience that we call the transfiguration. Poor Peter. You just occasionally have to feel a little bit sorry for him because he says, Master, It's really a good thing that we're here. Let's build three booths, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, at this point, since the last time Jesus has spoken directly to him, he's given him a name change and told him how important he is. In the one version of the uh, gospel, you notice what happens. Jesus calls him a name again, but this time he says, Get thee behind me, Satan, because what you're proposing is of man, not of God. Well, how could that be? I mean, Moses was just being nice. I mean, Peter was just being nice. He wanted to acknowledge Moses and Elijah and Jesus. He thought it was a good idea, and besides, it had worked in the previous scene, hadn't it? He still had booths on his mind. He still had niches in his mind from what he had seen that had been carved out of the caves back down at Caesarea Philippi. So it was all part of a living scene for him. And why was Jesus objecting to it? Because this was an absolute temptation. Because Jesus already knew, already knew what would lie ahead for him. And this would be a shortcut to glory. Shortcut to glory. All of a sudden we now have the Shekinah moment with the The shining face. Everything is wonderful. Don't have to be betrayed. Don't have to be denied. Don't have to be scourged. Don't have to be crucified. None of that. Right to glory. It's a little bit like American Christianity. This is a good day. We can go right from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. Nothing else is going to happen this week. You don't think that's so. Look at church attendance. Where are Christians on Monday, Thursday at the Last Supper? Uh, where are they on Good Friday? Well, and so you see, the culture and the world has always wanted the best deal. It always wants the joy. It always wants the sweetness. It always wants the alleluias. But that's not the story of the gospel. The gospel includes the cross, And if we're not really clear about how important that is, see you on Wednesday, right there in your foreheads. And so the reason why this day is so important for us because it reminds us that just as that transfiguration meant a little bit of fine-tuning for Peter, James, and John, you and I have to be engaged in fine-tuning in our spiritual lives right now. Today's the day. Fine-tuning. What's going to happen on Ash Wednesday? What am I going to do to walk with Jesus? But here's the point. Here's the whole point. You will be walking with Jesus. And so take a deep breath. I need to remind you Not everybody catches this. When it gets to be about day 33 in Lent, that's when people say to me Lent is so long. When it gets to day 43 in Easter, nobody says that it's long. See, people want shorter Lents and longer Easters. But, What's the situation for you and me? The situation is if you want to talk with Jesus, you have to walk with Jesus. That's the way it is. If you want part of his life, you have to have the whole life. And entering into the wholeness of the life of Jesus Christ means everything that comes with it. Just like Jesus said to his followers when he said, are you able to participate in my baptism? Are you able to drink from the cup? Are you able? Are you able? And he goes on even to tell them what was going to happen to him. And then once again, he looks at them and says, what do you think? You want this? And that's where I am today. You know what's going to happen this Lent and this Holy Week, right? In the life of Jesus. Are you willing to walk with him? Are you willing to walk every step with him as he goes through all of those circumstances being misunderstood? Where one day he has people shouting at the top of their lungs, save us, or in their language, Hosanna. And so he says, okay, I'll save you. And when it's time for him to save them, they say, crucify him. You have to walk with crowds that won't understand you who will become fickle, who are going to work with those who are winners. But you have to walk with Jesus every step of the way, even when the people think he's not a winner, because in the end, you know he is the winner. And so as you look at him today, I want you to think about his question. Now, I have to tell you, that nobody has absolutely told me what's on the final examination on Judgment Day. I need to let you know that. I don't know what it is. But if I were to guess, if I were to guess, I am almost convinced that one of the questions on the final examination on Judgment Day is in today's Gospel. In the one that occurs right before it, at least. Who do you say that I am? And the wrong answer is telling Jesus what everybody else says about him. The right answer is when you tell Jesus what you have to say about him. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.